This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Colorado's legislative session wrapped up last night. Lawmakers spent much of the last four months confronting revelations of sexual harassment in the Capitol, but they also passed plenty of legislation certain to impact the state for years, if not decades. CPR's Sam Brash was there all along the way. Sam, thanks for being here. I know it was a really late night. Yeah, lawmakers were literally striking 11th hour deals up here at the Capitol right up until midnight. I mean, part of me knows they had a lot to do. Another part of me kind of wonders if they're just sadistic. (laughs) I understand the session ended with some high drama last night around the future of the state's public pension fund or para. What happened? So lawmakers talked all session about trying to fix PARA and to make sure it can pay all of its future obligations. Without changes, the pension would have faced a funding gap of about $32 billion that could have hurt the state's credit rating. But at the start of the the day yesterday, House Democrats and Senate Republicans were really still far apart on a compromise. Did they manage to work it out? Yeah, they they did. Uh, They struck a last minute deal, lots of negotiations, and teachers unions really fought a few points of the plan. Uh, Governor Hickenlooper even got personally involved at one point to rally support from Democrats in the House. And that's really rare. Um, In the end, just enough House Democrats joined Republicans in that chamber to pass this thing. All right. So what does it do? Okay, so it puts a lot of money into the fund, $225 million from the state, then even higher contributions from both employees and taxpayers after that. It pauses annual cost of living increases for two years, so that's the amount someone's retirement benefits might go up every year. Um, And after that pause, it it decreases the uh, cost of living adjustment from 2% to uh, 1.5%. It also raises the retirement age for future hires to 64. And that's one of the things that the teachers unions really fought hard against and lost on. I know another big issue that came down to the wire was the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, which decides discrimination cases. Senate Republicans wanted to change the composition of the panel and make it more business friendly. But House Democrats worried that would weaken protections for all Coloradans. Did they find a deal in the end? Yeah, they did, but it really didn't look like they would. Lawmakers went back and forth during the day about whether to reauthorize this commission. At one point, a conference committee that was supposed to decide this thing, everybody just got up, walked away, Hmm. and it looked like it it wasn't going to happen, that we're going to have to come back and revisit this next year. Um, But after that meeting, some Republicans ended up accepting a compromise from Democrats, and just when we thought this thing was over, they came back and they struck a deal. So how did that compromise, how does that compromise change the commission? Right. So uh, there was a few things that each side conceded on. Democrats didn't want the commission split up along partisan lines. And on that front, they, you know, kind of gave it up. They said the panel can have still seven members, but now no more than three of them can be Democrats and no more than three of them can be Republicans. The compromise also adds a third business representative to the panel. And the Republicans, like I said, they also conceded some points. They wanted lawmakers to be able to to appoint some commissioners, not just the governor. Um, Um, But under the plan, the governor still retains all his or her power to make appointments. The plan does close a loophole, though, that Governor Hickenlooper used to reappoint a commissioner even after she'd been rejected by the state Senate. So that can't happen anymore. Once the state Senate rejects somebody, that's final. Lawmakers also voted on something about beer sales in grocery stores yesterday, right? 
Right. So this has to do with uh, something that's going to in, into effect January 1st. After the start of next year, many grocery stores and convenience stores can sell full-strength beer. That really upset some liquor store owners. They worry it could cut into their businesses. And some lawmakers also worried it could put alcohol into the wrong hands into people who might be younger than 21. So lawmakers got into the nitty-gritty around the policy around this one, and they decided in the end that stores that sell beer must be at least 500 feet from an existing liquor store and they also decided it would be all right for 18 year olds and uh, people up to the age of 21 to be able to sell and handle alcohol in any setting so lots of compromise in the final day and that's following on the heels of a big deal lawmakers were able to work out on transportation funding earlier this week can you walk us through that Yeah, that's right. And I think this is uh, probably fair to say this is the biggest thing they figured out along with Para over the course of the session. So what it does is it sets up a one-time investment of $495 million for transportation projects this year. That includes some project uh, transit projects and some money for cities. Also $150 million next year. That's just a one-time investment. Uh, The more complicated part here is going to deal with bonding. So the compromise would refer a measure to the ballot that would ask uh, voters to let the state take out $2.3 billion in bonds in 2019. 2019. So not this year. Right. So the idea here is to let voters weigh in on other initiatives moving toward the ballot this year. And they're competing measures. There's one backed by business groups that seeks a sales tax hike for transportation. And there's another one backed by the Independence Institute, a right-leaning libertarian think tank. And it would ask voters for a different kind of bonding package. So if either one of those passes, that scraps the legislature's uh, plan to go to the ballot in 2019. So to put it kind of all another way, lawmakers have kind of left the key in the ignition on this one, and voters decide what's next. Looking back earlier in the session, what else stands out as the big things lawmakers accomplished besides transportation and para? Yeah, there, there was actually a lot of things that made it through this year. I mean, they passed a balanced budget, budget with enough money to make kind of everybody happy. Um, they set up more money to expand rural broadband. They passed a, a, a couple of, uh, they referred a couple of ballot measures that would essentially uh, get rid of gerrymandering. It would outlaw gerrymandering in the Constitution for both legislative and congressional districts. So this was a, a really kind of remarkable session. A lot of things made it through. Well, it sounds like lawmakers accomplished a lot, at least uh, a lot of what they said they would back in January at the start of the session. Did that surprise you at all? Uh, yeah, it, it really did. I mean, this is an election year, right? Like we're heading into November elections. That's when lawmakers are going to be more inclined to score political points and try and do that rather than striking bargains that might look bad ahead of an election. Uh, and the legislature also had to really confront their own culture this year, a culture that let multiple lawmakers be accused of sexual harassment allegations over the course of the session. And they got a lot done despite those challenges. So, yeah, I I think it does surprise me. Well, and on that note, obviously, sexual harassment was a big topic at the Capitol this year. At least five lawmakers faced formal complaints over workplace misconduct. One lawmaker, uh, lawmaker, former Representative Steve Lebsock, was even expelled for his behavior. Did lawmakers do anything to address some of the issues brought up by the Me Too movement? 
Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that they did. But the big thing that they were trying to do was revise the legislature's workplace misconduct policies. This is something that a lot of lawmakers said they wanted to get done by the end of the session. And back in April, an outside firm released an investigation on the culture of the Capitol, and it included lots of recommendations of things they could do to sort of remedy this situation. Maybe they could set up a code of conduct for lawmakers. Maybe they could set up a you know new office of uh, culture that would basically basically work like an HR department. And there were so many that lawmakers sort of bought themselves some time rather than act on these recommendations. This year, they appointed a six-member committee to study the issue during the legislative off-season and draft potential bills for next year. So the fun does not stop at the Capitol. The fun never stops at the Capitol. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. CPR Sam Brash covered the Capitol this session for CPR. He caught us uh, up on what lawmakers accomplished over the last 120 days and some of what fell through the cracks. You can read more about the session at CPR.org. We'll be back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Public health officials put out an unusual warning recently to parents and teachers. Small devices that look like a flash drive might actually be an e-cigarette. The number of underage teens smoking electronic cigarettes has skyrocketed. As CPR health reporter John Daly explains, it's now drawing federal scrutiny. We learned about this trend when a conversation with some teens took a surprising turn. Our team from Colorado Matters went to Castle Rock to talk to kids about marijuana But students at Mesa Middle School told us weed isn't really the issue anymore. They say it's vaping. Mods and like jewels and stuff like that, vaping devices instead of like weed because it's way more accessible. You see people vaping, doing jewels and stuff, and we see it advertised everywhere. It's right in front of our face. Vaping has taken off with young people, especially with one of the most popular brands, Juul. Its devices are tiny and look like a pen or flash drive. When someone vapes, there's no fire, ash, or smoky odor. Federal agencies recently launched a wave of crackdowns against retailers that sell the Juul brand of e-cigarettes to minors. Public health officials worry it could be an emerging crisis. 21-year-old Julian Lavandier says, believe it. It's a habit for me, you know, all the time when I set down my schoolwork to do homework take a rip of the jewel. When I get in my car, take a rip of the jewel. Lavendier, a junior at CSU, says he started vaping when he was 16, a sophomore at Regis Jesuit High in Aurora. He'd go to parties where it was common to smoke an e-cigarette, which heats up and vaporizes a liquid or solid. At first, it was a lot of, you know, chasing flavors or doing smoke tricks, and that was really what impressed me. I thought, you know, this is cool. This looks like something fun. Students at his high school vaped in class without teachers knowing. He estimates a quarter of his classmates were habitual e-cigarette users. Lavendier started vaping regularly and later began smoking traditional cigarettes. When Juul arrived on the market, he took that up too and found it habit-forming, more than marijuana or alcohol. It's, it's impossible to, to let go once you've started using. I'll tell you, after even an hour and a half or two, I am chomping at the bit to find my jewel. Stores aren't supposed to sell e-cigarettes to minors, but Lavandier's been buying them for years and never been carted, not once. 
The FDA has also asked the firm behind Jules for documents to see if it's intentionally marketing to underage teens. My name is Lauren. The company runs online testimonials like this one from a woman in her 30s who says she's constantly encouraging people to use this and not smoke your cigarettes. Representatives from Jewel Labs declined an interview. A statement says its products offer a true alternative to adult smokers, not anyone else, not minors. Other companies that make e-liquids say their products are also not for minors. But they offer a rainbow of flavors like cotton candy, caramel, cherry, Smurf sauce, and cookies and milk. If they taste good and a kid might get their hands on it, that's not our goal. That's Jameson Rogers. He's with California-based Anywhere, Inc., a producer of e-cigarette and vaping products. As part of the crackdown on marketing to minors, the FDA targeted the company's e-liquid, one mad hit, Juice Box. Rogers says last year the company pulled it from distribution. But he says its products comply with federal law and it's up to retailers and distributors to not sell to minors. Also, I feel like some of the responsibility has to fall on some of the, the parents of any kid that's deciding to walk into an adult store, whether that's a liquor store or a tobacco store. One of the benefits of e-cigarettes, according to the industry, is that they can help people quit traditional smoking. Ray Short is founder and CEO of the Tobacco Vapor Electronic Cigarette Association. Don't start at all. But if you were going to smoke or do e-cigarettes, then certainly take an e-cigarette because it's vastly less harmful if you consider that both of them contain nicotine and both of them are addictive. It's vastly less harmful than conventional tobacco. This is a new way to get kids addicted to nicotine. Deb Lipson is a pediatric pulmonologist at Children's Hospital Colorado. She says there's been scant e-cigarette research, including on Juul, and the ingredients in the e-liquids used in the devices. They specifically use nicotine salts. We have no research that I could find on nicotine salts that are inhaled because it's so new. Data from 2015 found nearly half of Colorado high schoolers report they vaped. One in four said they'd used an e-cigarette in the last month. That's three times the rate of traditional cigarettes. Jen Balcoa is a health education coordinator with Jefferson County Schools. The Juul has definitely been a game changer. Belcoa says a tiny pod of e-liquid in a Juul has the equivalent nicotine of 20 cigarettes, an entire pack. She says most educators, parents, and students don't realize how much nicotine is in there or that there is even any nicotine. That's what the research tells us. Belcoa works with students as part of the B team, the Breathe Easy team. The group is educating students, parents, and administrators about tobacco use and jewels, and created a Facebook video. Jewels and other e-products are disguised to look like pens, flash drives. But their educational video competes with others posted by teens on social media sites like Instagram or Snapchat. On YouTube, there's a video called the Jewel Challenge. Two guys sit in the smoke-filled front seat of a car, competing, pulling on jewels. Cheers, guys. Let's see how many hits I can do. You got five? Five on a five. How many hits can you do? Write in the comments. That video had more than 145,000 views in three weeks. Teresa Kennison, a senior at Wheat Ridge High, who volunteers with the Breathe Easy team, says social media helps drive the trend. She's seen frequent use in classrooms, bathrooms, and parking lots, and she's noticed older kids making runs to the convenience store for younger ones. Can I give you this money so you can go get me a pod or will you go buy me a jewel? So it's kind of like a drug world if you think about it because, like, 
that's how dealers are doing their business and that type of thing. College student Julian Lavandier says he's now hooked on both cigarettes and e-cigarettes. On a typical day, he'll take upwards of 300 puffs of his jewel. So my biggest concern is, you know, right now I'm puffling, puffing happy, worry-free, and then in 20 years I'll have to explain to my kids why I've developed popcorn lung or some new form of lung cancer, you know, um, because I didn't know what the risks were of e-cigarettes. It terrifies me. Lavendier says he's in uncharted territory. He says it took him less than 10 days to get addicted. He's since tried to quit, but now can't go three days without using a Juul. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Dr. Larry Wolk joins us now. He's the executive director and chief medical officer of the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. That's the state health department. Dr. Wolk has been in that role for nearly five years, and we should note uh, he's also a pediatrician. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So uh, what do you make of that last statement in John Daly's story? This 21-year-old is terrified about what five years of using e-cigarettes like Juul might be doing to his health. Well, it's very insightful. Uh, Most uh, teenagers and young adults uh, who are engaging in e-cigarettes or Juuls or vaped products uh, don't have that uh, insight, that that sort of long-range thinking of what the potential health impacts of these may be. How concerned are you about this larger trend? I mean, do, do you welcome federal assistance on this issue? Uh, we need federal assistance on this issue. Um, without it, uh, we don't have any teeth when it comes to trying to regulate retailers. You know, nobody uh, can lose their license for selling these uh, and these devices uh, to minors. Uh, they're, they're minor infractions if they're caught. Um, research, uh, as you heard in the story, uh, is also scant. Um, so there's this perception that this is less harmful or even should be less harmful than um, tobacco products. Um, but but we don't know that. And, and we don't know what the implication of taking a hit from a jewel, which has, as you heard, the nicotine of an entire pack of cigarettes uh, in a single hit, uh, what the long-term uh, implications of that may be. You said hearing these young people was insightful, but was it surprising to you? Uh, It wasn't surprising. It it aligns with the data that we have. Uh, We survey uh, kids uh, statewide uh, through a number of of different vehicles, and we know that um, there's been a dramatic increase uh, in the use of uh, vaping and e-cigarettes and jewels. Jewels, in fact, uh, uh, constitute half the market now uh, when it comes to vaporized uh, or um, this this e-cigarette uh, uh, market. So uh, obviously, um, you know, to hear each and every one of them mention Jewel by name, uh, you know, is very concerning. This this has become part of youth culture. Uh, they they don't necessarily view it as a, a health behavior one way or the other, uh, the way maybe cigarettes were. Uh, this is something now that uh, is becoming ingrained as, as a part of their culture. So what do you make of the vaping industry saying, you know, we're not marketing to kids? Uh, I th- think that's BS. Sorry. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when, when we survey kids, almost 90 percent say that um, they start uh, along the lines of these products uh, as a result of the flavoring. So if they're not marketing to kids, uh, then then why create these flavors that uh, would be much more appealing to kids? 
there's also a very high association of then co-use of uh, tobacco products. Uh, and uh, So using an e-cigarette along with actually a regular cigarette. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And or if uh, somehow they get off uh, e-cigarettes, as you heard from uh, the young one, ma- uh, one young man at uh, CSU, um, you know, he's now uh, – th- this is a gateway uh, to getting onto cigarettes and we see a much higher association of young adults coming onto cigarettes as a result of uh, using e-cigarettes uh, or jewels or whatever uh, as adolescents. Do you fear where this generation will be, let's say, X number of years down the road? Um, I do. The only sort of optimism I can hold on to is that uh, as uh, we try to catch up uh, at the federal level and from a regulatory standpoint, that maybe this won't be so ingrained as part of our youth culture and uh, maybe our youth will move on to something else uh, that's, that's less harmful. Are you seeing data that backs it up here in Colorado? Uh, we have some preliminary data uh, with regard to 2017 numbers that show that uh, this use rate of the e-cigarettes um, and the jewels is starting to level off. So uh, it's, of course, a, a very concerning that uh, you know 50% or more of our youth have at least tried these things, with one in four having used them within the past uh, 30 days. Uh, it looks like uh, our 2017 data show that that may be leveling off, and that's really, for me, the single best news I've heard on this subject in a while. So uh, maybe some of uh, the education and some of the recent uh, regulations to try and clamp down uh, are starting to to have an impact. And or maybe youth, uh, you know, uh, maybe this innovation uh, is has peaked and, and hopefully uh, our youth will move on to something else. What about this industry argument that, that we hear that, you know, at least kids are vaping rather than smoking? Yeah. Again, we don't buy it just because we don't have the research to support that the vaping has these direct um, negative health uh, impacts doesn't mean that they don't exist. And again, there's this co-occurrence of tobacco use um, that's so much higher uh, amongst kids who have used the e-cigarettes that, um, you know, I I just can't buy that argument. Um, You know, the one argument that there may be a very small window just to give them a little something is that if you're a lifelong smoker as a a middle-aged or older adult, uh, you know, it's it's possible that um, using an e-cigarette instead of tobacco uh, maybe less harmful in that very unique and narrow situation, but that has nothing to do with um, trying to market something that's bubblegum flavored to a kid. How do parents approach the subject with their kids? Um, because there are flavors and their friends are using this and they see it as something that may be different from smoking or better than smoking. How do the parents uh, speak about this to kids? I think it depends on the age of the child. Uh, With younger children, I think you can um, set very clear rules and limits and, uh, uh, you know, um, use this uh, as an opportunity uh, to to create some definition around this that says, you know, we think this is bad for you. You should not do this and and set those rules. And and when I say younger, I mean elementary aged. You know, when when you get to middle school aged and high school aged, it's about educating kids and it's about getting them to think critically about uh, what this could mean as it uh, relates to their participation in athletics, uh, what it means as it relates to their 
potentially being suspended from school, or maybe they're going to get involved in a relationship and uh, the person they want to be in a relationship with um, uh, thinks poorly of this and will think poorly of them uh, if they're engaged in, in this kind of activity. And that's the approach you have to take with uh, older kids is try to sort of give them what the consequences of their actions may be, but then also talk to them about the harms, what we know and what we don't know, uh, in a very balanced way so that uh, your kids learn to be critical thinkers just like uh, we learn as adults. What about the retailers who provide products to underage kids? I mean, can the state help with, with a federal crackdown that, that's happening across the country? Um, we could, but again, we don't uh, lack uh, – I mean, we lack the regulatory authority to take um, more significant action. And so that's why we need the help of the federal government and the FDA. Uh, the state, uh, through the legislature, could certainly step up and um, uh, take more significant enforcement actions. But uh, as I said, we, we've yet to see a retailer lose their license for selling to a minor – uh, whereas that's completely different uh, as it relates to alcohol uh, and even as it relates to marijuana. Should the state raise the smoking age to 21 like uh, the city of Aspen done, has done here in Colorado? Um, I think it helps because it creates more distance um, from uh, you know the time that uh, a youth may be introduced if you can push that um, uh, legalized age uh, up to 21. Um, but I think enforcement is really the key. If uh, you're not going to um, have stricter enforcement uh, of the retailers, then whether it's 18 or 21, uh, our younger kids are going to be able to have access to this. All right. Big picture here. Does this have the potential to erode the success of anti-tobacco efforts that have been going on for years? I mean, after a big push, smoking rates have dropped in the U.S. Could this reverse that? Um, it could in the uh, young adult age range, uh, and this is where people have to be careful because you know the industry, um, you know, could tout, and and of course we see the data that uh, cigarette smoking continues to be on the decline amongst our youth, um, which is good news, but uh, amongst young adults, it's starting to increase again. And, uh, you know, we, we believe, uh, based on uh, pretty good evidence, that um, this increase in e-cigarette and, and, and vaped products uh, is now leading to a resurgence or an increase in young adults with regard to tobacco products. Dr. Larry Wolk heads the State Health Department. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Nathan. My pleasure. One of the most enduring symbols of the Cold War turned 60 on Saturday. It's the North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD. Run jointly by the U.S. and Canada, NORAD was initially located at Ent Air Force Base in Colorado Springs, but operations were later moved into a massive man-made bunker deep inside Cheyenne Mountain. Here, positions of aircraft are plotted and planes are tracked until their identity is established. Thus, the military defense of America stands ready, alert for possible enemy attack. On Saturday, NORAD is make, marking the anniversary with speeches and a flyover. We thought it was a good opportunity to look back on the history of NORAD and explore its relevance today. My guest is journalist Garrett Graff. He's the author of Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. Thanks for being on the program. 
My pleasure. So set the scene for us. It's 1958, and the U.S. and Canada come together to monitor the skies in case of a nuclear attack by the Soviets. What prompted the creation of NORAD? So the U.S. was actually in the midst of a bunker building boom uh, in the late 1950s, um, some of which uh, were actually entirely secret at the time. And what made NORAD a little bit different was it was a sort of publicly known bunker from the first days of its construction, that the mm-hmm. groundbreaking ceremony was you know, covered by the media and it was a big deal uh, out in uh, Colorado Springs and Cheyenne Mountain. And the U.S. military was building these bunkers. Uh, the U.S. government was building these bunkers actually across the country. Um, the, the NORAD was going to be the third major bunker along with the fallback Pentagon, a bunker known as Raven Rock in Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, and then the president's own bunker at Mount Weather in Berryville, Virginia. Um, those were the three biggest, um, and they are really literally hollowed out mountains with small cities built inside of them. But uh, more than 100 of these facilities, uh, bunkers uh, of varying sizes, were built in the 50s and 60s across the country in almost every state in the country. Uh, and the goal was to be able to survive nuclear war, um, which at that point mostly meant Soviet bombers. Uh, and meant, uh, for the most part, atomic bombs rather than thermonuclear bombs. Of course, as NORAD was being constructed, you had the switch from bombers to missiles and the arrival of ICBMs, and really uh, thermonuclear bombs, hydrogen bombs, became the primary weapon facing the United States. So it was essentially to keep the government moving after an attack, not so much maybe the safety of the people, but but, but of course making sure the president and Congress, etc., were fine. Is that right? Yeah, it was part of what was known then and is still known today as the continuity of government, the COG plans. And the goal for continuity of government was to ensure that the president uh, or a designated successor, um, that is, you know, member of the congressional leadership or the cabinet leadership, survived that initial attack and was able to launch a retaliatory uh, assault on the Soviet Union. The goal was to sort of always ensure that someone was in control of America's nuclear arsenal. Construction of the Cheyenne Mountain Complex began in 1961 and was completed several years later. What's inside? Cheyenne Mountain today looks a lot like what it did at the original construction. Um, And it's sort of a U-shaped tunnel, uh, which is meant to allow sort of the blast wave from a nearby nuclear explosion to come in one side and pass straight out the other. And then offset at the center of that U is a massive uh, bunker facility. Um, And it has sort of everything inside of it that you would need to survive nuclear war for two to four weeks, which was the the time that the U.S. was planning for sort of people to be, as they say, buttoned up, uh, waiting for fallout to uh, dissipate. And so inside, you know, you've got uh, a large cafeteria, you've got command centers, you've got medical facilities, you've got massive underground reservoirs, both for drinking water 
and energy, uh, as well as a power generating plant uh, inside of Cheyenne Mountain that I, would I allow it to. There's also a restaurant, a Subway fast food restaurant in there. Did I get that right? Yeah. So that's sort of part of what makes these facilities so funny is that they, uh, you know, on the one hand are, uh, you know, top secret government uh, classified facilities. And on the one hand are sort of normal government office buildings. So in the modern context today, the NORAD cafeteria uh, inside Cheyenne Mountain also includes a Subway fast food franchise. Can you take us back to November 9th, 1979, when, as you write in your book, NORAD faced perhaps the most confounding and terrifying moment of the Cold War? What exactly happened? Yeah, so there were these two scares in 1979 and 1980 uh, that uh, really led to computer malfunctions basically making it look like on the screens at NORAD that a Soviet nuclear attack was underway. Um, One of them was a, a training accident where what was supposed to be a training scenario was fed into the real computer rather than the training computer inside NORAD. So the people looking at the screens saw what appeared to be an unfolding uh, all-out Soviet general nuclear attack on the United States. And then uh, the second was a malfunctioning computer chip Hmm. that uh, led the government to uh, think that a um, uh, basically there there were two thousand two hundred Soviet ICBMs on their way to the United States. This was the final months of Jimmy Carter's administration. Uh, it was in the middle of the night, and this warnings popped up on the computers in NORAD. Uh, they woke Zbigniew Brzezinski, the National Security Advisor, uh, and told him to wake the president and uh, to prepare to launch an all-out U.S. Uh, missile response. Uh, but luckily in the time that it took Brzezinski to wake Carter or to prepare to wake Carter, uh, it became clear that this was just a computer malfunction. Um, those were, by the way, sort of the the incidents when they became public that led to the creation of the movie War Games starring Matthew Broderick, which is sort of probably NORAD's most famous turn in popular culture. I want to jump ahead now to uh, 9-11, uh, 2001. What 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 role did NORAD play on that day? Uh, NORAD has uh, sort of their day to day mission is to protect the U.S. Uh, airspace um, and, and North American airspace. NORAD is a joint Canadian and U.S. facility, so it is uh, run by both Canadian personnel and U.S. personnel um, deep inside the mountain. And on 9-11, actually, uh, the Pentagon and the U.S. military was engaged in a large-scale exercise, uh, both monitoring an ongoing Soviet exercise as well – or sorry, an ongoing Russian exercise um, in early September 2001, as well as its own uh, sort of NORAD, North American 
exercise known as Vigilant Guardian. And so across the country on the morning of September 11th, we were putting nuclear weapons aboard bombers across the country and sort of spooling them up, readying them, making sure that we could launch them in the event of an emergency. And that was when NORAD gets the first warnings that uh, planes have been hijacked that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. And part of the confusion in that morning was sort of rippling across U.S. government, rippling across NORAD was this uh, confusion over whether this was this was part of the exercise or whether this was a real-world threat. And they buttoned um, and up the place, right? They closed it up, right? They did. And it was it's the first and only time that NORAD has been buttoned up uh, sort of in anger uh, as they say, in response to real-world events. Uh, and they closed up and sealed up the mountain uh, in order to uh, make sure they they were afraid at that point that an airliner might be targeting Cheyenne Mountain. So what is the status of Cheyenne Mountain complex today? Uh, apparently, it's in what's called warm standby, right? Uh, well, so actually, it was, it, it was largely shut down and put in warm standby, uh, in the mid 2000s, um, when we sort of got uh, uh, more afraid of terrorism than the Russians, um, uh, what we've actually seen, though, in the last couple of years, is that NORAD has been fully reactivated and is being rebuilt uh, in part to deal with the cyber threat. Um, that it is still has a very active role. Um, in running operations in North America in the event of some sort of catastrophic attack on the United States and that NORAD itself is one of the only uh, so-called EMP-shielded facilities. That's the electromagnetic pulse that would come from a high-level uh, high-altitude nuclear explosion. And, and just and, briefly, but before we wrap up, I, what about Russia and North Korea? Of course, we're seeing things happen on that stage as well. Is there a role for Cheyenne Mountain now with that? It, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's a lot of what NORAD monitors day to day. And whenever you see uh, those missile launches uh, take place with North Korea, which we thankfully haven't seen in a while. Um, that's sort of all funneled through the Air Force, Peterson Air Force Base, uh, and NORAD uh, there in Colorado Springs. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Garrett Graff is the author of Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. We've been talking about NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, which turned 60 on Saturday. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. As much as parents like to brag about their kids, raising children can also be mortifying. My seven-year-old completely called me out on a little white lie I told to get out of a birthday party. He said, Mom, you're at home drinking beer. My daughter ripped a handful of chest hair off my husband and fed it to the dog. He threw up. She threw up. He ate her vomit. (laughs) That's Shana Firm and Tracy T. reading from their new book, Parentally Incorrect, True Tales by Real Moms About the Effed Up Things Their Kids Have Done. The duo from Denver star in the long-running Pump and Dump show. The book collects handwritten notes submitted by moms at their shows, but they had to do some winnowing down. The hardest task was filtering out all of the poop. 
It was there's just <laughs> unbelievable amount of an unbelievable amount. So there are common America. themes. We that you we actually to... started to separate them by theme because we could probably write a book about each and every theme. There, there's even you know older kids and theft. Uh, <laughs> sure, <laughs> and then there's like fingers up dogs. Yes, orifices, orifices, um, like so, like hundreds of those. Yeah, who would think that? Um, well, you would be surprised. Apparently, many, many children in America, many, many children in America have eaten out of the kitty litter. Oh, sure. It's un- I mean, there's just an unbelievable amount of gross. The pair hosts their Mother's Day Eve comedy show and dance party Saturday at the Paramount Theater in Denver. Let's listen back to our conversation from last year with Shayna Firm and Tracy T. Shayna, Tracy, welcome to the program. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for having us. Uh, Shana, explain what you mean by parentally incorrect. Well, um, the show started with us kind of, you know, the idea was that we would say the things that people really were afraid to say. Yeah. Um, we would be the jerks and kind of talk about the things that happen as parents um, that, you know, maybe you don't want to admit or, um, you know, that maybe you would feel guilty saying or talking about. Like what? Um, well, you know, there's just a lot of things that happen to us every day. And I think one of the, we don't use these words in particular, but we, we say that parenting is really messed up and ridiculous. And I think that on a daily basis, there's just so many things that we never thought we'd be doing that we're doing. Um, and so that's the world we live in. And that's kind of the experience we give the moms, you know, to kind of celebrate how messed up being a parent is. And and Tracy, I understand that this all began with a need for a night out without the kids. Yes. Um, So we started the show um, a little over four years ago up at Local 46 in the Highlands. Mm -hmm. Um, And both our daughters were a year and a half-ish, and Shay had just had her second. And we were just kind of in the thick of it. And Shay had been sort of reading her local mommy listserv and people, you know, freaking out about just sort of everything like you do when you have a young kid. And you know, she just kind of thought, gosh, we just all need to have a night out and a drink. And we kind of felt the same way. And so we just sort of put the show together on a lark as a way to keep our brains going, too, instead of just oozing out of our heads yeah. with diaper cream. <laughs> and um, so it started very organically and then just grew into our full-time job and a really fun very live, interactive, multimedia night out for moms. Well, and very quickly they came in groups. So we realized it was something that was like needed and that it was like a celebration with friends. Who, uh, we call them their breeder friends. We call the moms affectionately. We call them breeders. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, but you, now you have a background in the entertainment industry. You didn't mm-hmm. just go from parenting right into comedy. <laughs> no, you, no, no, no. You have some <laughs> no. experience. So yeah. h- how does this mommy comedy compared to maybe what you were doing? (laughs) Well, I think that if you had asked me six years ago if I would be writing songs about what it's like to be a mom, I would have told you that that sounds terrible. Um, But I've been writing comedy songs for, gosh, I mean, I did it for 12 years in New York City. And so I, I feel like, you know, it was just kind of an evolution of myself as a comedian. And it just kind of happened really organically. And it just is funny because it's still funny, you know? Yeah, and it's just, you know, comedy is about the space that you're in at the moment, right? So this is this is our world, and um, it's just, it's very easy to laugh. I mean, we think it's important to laugh at parenting. It's just, it's just <laughs> such a ridiculous endeavor. Well, let's hear another clip from one of your shows. It's uh, Shay singing the song Parental Lovin'. Oh. Let's close the baby gate and have a date. <laughs> I'm still a woman. Come on. Let's give the kids some goldfish. 
turn the TV on I'll never even know I'm gone where, where do you get uh, this material from? I'm assuming it's all from experience, none of it from experience? Um, <laughs> yes, I've never wanted private time with my husband <laughs> while my children are bothering us. Just we've never, the baby gate, we've right? never yeah. turned on Sophia the First and yes. um, snuck upstairs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, that's the thing is like we, we – I mean, I just wrote a new song for um, – this next show about like how moms constantly think, you know, that their kid is not getting sick, that it's just allergies, you know, like the only reason that we think of something that kind of weird and, and off is because that's so common and you would never think of it. But it's, of course, every mom is always like, oh, my God, please just be allergies. Please just be allergies. Well, and it's definitely our experience, but it's also it's also our friends' experience. It's our family's experience. I mean, you know, you share stories as parents and you just, you know, you can't make that stuff up. Well, how do you how do you gauge if something is funny? Do you put it in front of moms and be like, "Hey, is this funny?" or is it a general idea of what is funny to to anyone, parent or or, or not parent? Well, that's that's an interesting question because we're about to do a show for a sold out crowd at Comedy Works that's basically almost an you know a brand new brand show. New. <laughs> so we ask each other a lot what's funny, yeah. and then we just um... trust that we know how to do this show because we've been doing it for four and a half years. Um, but, you know, the show's really not about us or the comedy in, in the larger scope. It's really a night out. It is the mom's night out. And that's what it's become. And these moms, you know, they go to dinner together first at 6 o'clock. The show starts at 7.30. It's done at 9. And they're home by 10. And it is like, you know, especially because we've been in Denver so long, you know, they come back. They bring friends. Oh, my sister's in town. I want to bring her to a pump and dump. It's really so much more about them having a great time we give them prizes we give them they play games you know we 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 laugh it out we have everybody write down um the most ridiculous thing their kid did recently which you can see on our instagram page there's a lot of them that we post but we have tens of thousands of those you know these stories that we read that are their stories and you know uh tracy is kind of like the host kind of the conduit for um you know guiding us through the evening and and it's really you know and it's not, we're not, we don't man bash. We, it's not, we don't just stand up and talk about how bad our husbands are. We don't kid bash even. It's not like, you know, two moms holding a martini glass wearing an apron like, I wish everyone did the laundry. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's not that kind of a show. Although I do wish everyone did the laundry. I wish there wasn't laundry. Wish I just that. wish laundry <laughs> didn't exist. But um, so it's it's really about the parenting experience. And it's, it like we said, it's not really about us. It's about, the you know, being part of this group of parents. Now, Shana, you have two children, ages four and six. Uh, Tracy, your child is six. As they grow and get older, how does that influence your comedy? <laughs> totally. I mean, it's it's just, I, I mean, in parenting, first of all, everything that happens kind of lasts for like three weeks, right? And then changes. Yeah. So, you know, I would say that on a larger scale is just like, you know, you think you've got one thing figured out or you think, oh, finally they're potty trained. Well, now, you know, every time I walk into the bathroom, there, nobody's flushed. You know, there's just like a constant challenge in a different way as they grow. So, you know, our our show is really geared towards new moms um, because that's when you're really in the thick of it and really need our show. But we have grandmas that go and still really appreciate what we're talking about because um, ultimately and what this next tour is actually called our Band of Mothers Tour. You know, we, we've created kind of this space for every kind of mom Um and I think it's good because I failed to um, 
make a baby book or record any of those early times with my child. <laughs> so if for us, it's good. We, you know, we're constantly reflecting back on our, you know, the early days experiences compared to now and finding that balance. And I think it gives us perspective. You know, we can think back of those early baby days when you just thought everything was going to go up in smoke and... And then it's it's nice to compare it to kind of where we're at now, which isn't mm-hmm. – I mean, we still have super young children. So everything we're going through is new and we're certain we're going to fail. And every day, you know, we just wonder if we're going to make it through too. Are shocked. Well, I, I want to wrap this this conversation up uh, with Tracy. How often do you get dads or, or people who are not parents in the audience? Or, or do you need to? All the time. Um, you know, our husbands love the show and we would never make a show that they didn't love. And dads really do appreciate it. I think they see it from a different lens. We get a lot of like, oh, my gosh, now everything she was saying makes total sense. Or, <laughs> you know, I didn't think of it that way from a mom's perspective. But it's still, like we said, it's not like hating on dads the whole time. So it's really fun for any parent. And we get lots of, you know, preschool teachers that come and and labor and delivery nurses that come right. people who work with children doulas and nannies all of I mean I think if you know children you appreciate it that reminds me that it's a great present for dads to buy there yes. and so um we're actually wanted to announce today that um our Mother's Day Eve show this year is actually going to be at the Paramount and we are super excited so that is the best Mother's Day gift that you could give yes thanks so much for joining us You are so welcome. We're so happy to be here. Thank you. (laughs) Shana Firm and Tracy T. of The Pump and Dump Show, their Mother's Day Eve comedy show and dance party takes place this Saturday at the Paramount Theater. Their book, Parentally Incorrect, True Tales by Real Moms About the Effed Up Things Their Kids Have Done, is out now. And that's our show. I'm Nathan Hevel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day. Said you better wait, child. Said you been a long time running.